episode of Just Another Bozo on the Bus. My name is Paul Randack. I'm your host. Um, today I am honored and glad to have Russell Jones with us. Um, we, Russell and I were talking before uh, the, the session about how, a lot of things that we have in common and people we know have been telling both of us that we should meet each other. So it's kind of interesting that we're meeting each other today on the podcast, but it feels like I've known you for a long time. So yeah. we have uh, some very similar backgrounds, and we'll, we'll get into that today and, and learn a, a little bit about Russ and, um, as I say, what makes him or what how he's just another bozo on the bus. I want to welcome all our bozo listeners um, and appreciate your patience as uh, we take some time in between some of these podcast and who knows when the next one will be but it'll be when it's time when it's time to happen welcome russ glad thank you, you glad you're here today glad to be okay. here okay uh, russ is also going to be playing some music and in the intro that you heard uh before we got into the podcast was um his flute playing and many of you may have already known or heard of russ uh, from his i was going to say uh native american music but flute music but I was told that that's maybe not the best way to say that. How, how do you describe it? Uh, well, I'd play woodwinds, and some are native-made, and some are made by other people from other countries. And um, so I, I just call them native flutes. Native flutes. Yeah. Beautiful. Um, and we'll be doing, and uh, Russ will be playing a little bit more uh, as we get a certain way through the podcast, so you guys can enjoy that. And uh, though I'll probably repeat this at the end, but we'll give a, a, a link and a way to, uh, if you like what you hear, how to uh, add this beautiful music to your repertoire. Awesome. Or your meditative practices, I, I would say. Anyway. Yeah. Okay. Um, take a moment. Let's, let's hear about uh, a little bit about your story and uh, what makes or what, you know, conditioned you, domesticated you just to become another bozo on the bus another bozo on the bus it's an interesting term um when i'm i'm a a toltec master and and teacher and um one of the uh, ideas that i like to uh, present to people is that we we all basically have the same abilities um we're just conditioned differently some of us may be a little more sensitive. Uh, some of us may be more feeling. 
Um, some of us may be more thinking types and um, learning about those things um, for myself has been a great help to me personally um, to find out that um, I'm highly intuitive, highly sensitive, um, I'm empathic, so I, I feel other people's feelings sometimes and that can be really annoying. Um, and uh, so, so being another bozo on the bus, learning about, um, and I, I don't know if this is true, but I imagine the empathic um, people in Salem, um, when the people in the town didn't appreciate uh, what they were thinking or feeling or seeing, um, they burned them at the stake. So after a while, you got the idea that it probably wasn't a good idea to uh, show your abilities, those abilities, uh, to other people. Another great moment in American history. Yeah. <laughs> so the, 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 this idea, um, if I'm hearing you or understanding you correctly, the, that um, having some natural ability to be empathic, to understand, to um, feel deeply or be sensitive to things um, is not always looked on as an asset in, in society. Correct. Or by certain, at least certain groups of people. Correct. Right. I, I know when I grew up in uh, elementary school, um, you were really, um, th there was some pride um, and the way I see it, judgment on you if you got all A's and B's, you're on the honor roll. If you were a star athlete, um, then you got lots of kudos and lots of recognition that was positive. And if you didn't have those abilities, uh, you, in my case, I didn't have those abilities. Um, it was negative. So I didn't get good grades. I wasn't very athletic. And so um, I, I was looked down upon um, because of those things. And um, in society then, we had the Police Athletic League, and you got uh, patches or ribbons for um, throwing the ball the farthest. And I would wind up, throw the ball as hard as I could, and it would go about three feet. <laughs> It was uh, very disappointing to everybody and myself. I'm sure those were a great three feet, though. <laughs> uh, no, it was an awful three feet. It was just awful. Um, so um, it's it's taken a long time for me to recognize um, that there was nothing wrong with me. But, um, you know, I know my parents had the best of intentions, and I know that the schools had the best of intentions, but what happened for me, um, it it didn't didn't serve me very well to have those um, goals set in place for me. Um, if I would have had other goals set that were uh, more to um, support uh, my sensitivities in life, I think I would have um, maybe grown up a little bit quicker than I did. Do you mean like when you say um, goals? Are you speaking about traditional academia and athletic goals and how that was marked um, as uh, some sign of success yes. and achievement in life? Okay. Yes. Yeah. So, so in, in our family, uh, my stepfather was an engineer for uh, uh, aero, aeronautics engineer for Lockheed. Uh, my uh, father worked for Eastman Kodak, and, and uh, our family had been in Kodak from the time it started, so... 
the goal for uh, the men in our family was to work for Kodak and to become a vice president um, in the company. And so I started on that track and um, I, well, once I found out what you had to do to become a vice president for the company, I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to move every other year. Um, and my abilities, um, as far as uh, cognitively um, uh, understanding how to fix machines, how to be an engineer, um, was different than other um, engineers. And I'm an intuitive, so I learn intuitively and I fix the machines intuitively. And uh, my boss would ask me, how did you fix that machine? And I would say, I don't know, but I fixed it. And Which, by the way, is not a, a great answer <laughs> to uh, give someone who's probably very rational in, in their yes. quantitative thinking or qualitative thinking. Oh, yeah. And, and he, it would drive him bat crazy um, because he would want to know, you know, how did you troubleshoot it? How did you run it down? And, be, and being that I'm intuitive... I would read all the books, so I read like 25 different uh, manuals on the machines, and I would just know from what I had read. Uh, but I couldn't tell you exactly how I figured it out, I just knew. And uh, so my boss would have to go explain to his boss, and then he would quote, look stupid, um, because he didn't have the information. Um, and in my mind, I was quite brilliant because I knew how to fix the machine, and I just didn't know how I did it. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, obviously, you had some, you had some brilliance. Oh yeah. Maybe just not the brilliance of explaining to others how, how you did it. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, you had mentioned you grew up. Um, by the way, was the family in San Francisco? Because that's where you grew up with. Because Kodak is out of Rochester, right? Cause, Correct. Yeah. Correct. And that's where they had their what do you call it the um, campus yeah the Kodak yes. campus yes did you was was your family in 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 San Francisco is that where they were working out of with Kodak uh, we we worked out of Palo Alto at their processing lab and uh-huh. um, my father uh, my grandfather um, was in um, Los Angeles working for Kodak and then when they built the lab in the 1950s um, my father started working there. Um, in Palo Alto, and then uh, my brother, my two sisters, myself worked there, and um, I started. A family, uh, truly yeah. a family experience. A oh family yeah, plan. and from the beginning of Kodak, our family worked there. Um, but my um, father's father um, came from Rochester, okay. and so he worked for Kodak back there. Huh. Yeah, wild, wild. So, what was it like growing up in the Bay Area? What, what? Uh, what kind of experience did you have? Growing up in the Bay Area was fantastic. It, the Bay Area back then in the 60, early 60s, um, there was lots of cherry orchards, lots of orchards, um, period. And um, lots of building going on. Um, and, you know, my parents got divorced when I was like five years old. So there, there was quite the upheaval in our family. We moved to Los Angeles with... Uh, some old people uh, called my grandparents, <laughs> quite frightening people to me. Um, they lived in a creepy big house. My stepfather, step-grandfather was a stuntman for Universal Studios and was in King Kong and uh, lots of pretty um, big movies of the time. And 
Um, yeah, that would be the original King. Right? Yes, the or original the King one. Kong. Yeah, yeah. He, yeah. He was he was on the stage when King Kong was on the stage, and they were doing the trapeze above King Kong. That was my grandfather was one of those men. Um, so so living up, you know, growing up in the Bay Area as a as a sensitive, empathic little boy, um, growing up in an uh, alcoholic home, and I was scared. There was some scary stuff going on in the house. Uh, being out, playing outside, you know, back in the 60s, we drank out of the hose and, and went outside <laughs> and played until we got called to come home for dinner. And uh, I actually, I just looked up the house that I grew up in in San Jose, and I think my parents paid 18000 for it. Now it's going for $1.3 million. Isn't that wild? It's just wild. Um, so, you know, I had a... What what would you call it a a normal upbringing, in in a you know middle class family, um, Mid- middle class alcoholic family, yeah, right? yeah middle class yeah. alcoholic family, right. um, but I I call it it's like it was the only home I knew yeah, um, so when we were outside playing, big fun, um, and I wouldn't bring people into my house because it was scary. Once I went into the house, I went to my bedroom, and pretty much locked myself in my room and I drew painted on the walls um, like I was telling you earlier from the time I was pretty young I was uh, collecting rocks um, I had a great uh, relationship with stones and rocks and my mother would complain about uh, when I was going to stop putting rocks in my pockets because they got put in the washing machine and created quite the racket I see yeah yeah it, the rocks did <laughs> yes yeah. well I'm guessing you uh, didn't really listen to your mother in, about collecting rocks. Uh, no, actually, um, now that I think about it, I was talking to you earlier about this, but um, my stepfather uh, took me to the rock shop back there. Back then, there were stores that sold rocks, and uh, and it was a fascinating place for me to go and. Um, to be able to see different kinds of rocks and to learn about them. And um, she still didn't appreciate that I was putting my rocks in my pockets. But um, <laughs> Even if you were buying them. <laughs> yeah, even if... And, you know, my stepfather, he, he did a great job trying to accommodate my learning style. Uh, he bought a rock tumbler um, for me and... And we started doing that, and he was a mason, um, uh, so he started out life as a mason, and then he became an electronics engineer for Lockheed Corporation. Um, so, part part of my, um, I'm going to get into my fantastical thinking, um, because during that time in my life, um, there was a lot of um, unrest in my house. And so when I would go to school, I would just look out the window because I really didn't understand what the teachers were saying, trying to teach me how to do math problems. And, you know, my parents took me to church and I didn't understand church. Why, why are they trying to tell me these stories about these, to me, fictional people? And I just, I was very confused um, about life and why I was presented with the uh, information I was being given. Um, so I like to uh, look out the window and daydream and and um, and started to make up stories um, for myself. 
because that seemed much more soothing than the uh, the harsh world that I lived in. What um, what religion was the family attempting to indoctrinate you into? Uh, my stepfather was a Protestant. Okay. Or no, he was Episcopalian. That's what he was. Yeah. Um, but I I didn't go very often because it was just so confusing to me, and I I just refused to go. Um, so right right around that same time, I um, was introduced to uh, some drugs. Um, uh, first off, my parents took me to the doctors because they thought there was something wrong with me um, because I was just daydreaming all the time in school. And so they um, determined that I needed, um, I had a Ritalin deficiency, and uh, they put me on Ritalin. And and then I was wired out of my brain, and I got all A's and B's because I, I, I had to focus, and I focused really good um, for about a year. And then... Um, then I started to abuse uh, the Ritalin, and I started drinking and smoking uh, pot at a nice young age of nine years old, and um, started into that realm of life uh, in 1967. Um, so I was put in special ed class. Uh, same thing, I was really confused about, and, and kind of happy that I got put in these classes, but I didn't really think I was like these other kids. Um, I didn't think I was a bozo on their bus. And I definitely didn't think I was a bozo on... Um, and I didn't think I was a bozo on the bus. I thought it was bad. You thought something was wrong with you. Yeah, there was some, there was definitely something wrong with me because everybody was telling me that. And well, they then, put the, you'd gone on drugs. and Yeah, you know. well, the ensuing uh, storm of trouble uh, from stealing cars, burglarizing houses, getting arrested for those offenses, and uh, getting put in jail, uh, it tends to make you think there's something wrong. It reinforces that, that belief system, right? Yeah. <laughs> and they thought they would uh, distract me from doing those things, but um, I, I just started to accept that that was the way life was, that I was the bozo on that bus, the bus that... Um, I would confront the police. The police would confront me. Um, I had quite the competition going on with the police. <laughs> I, they knew me on a first-name basis as a kid riding a Stingray bicycle. <laughs> and um, so that became part of um, a dream that um, I really got to see my shadow um, in that dream. And I had other dreams where I would look and... Um, have dreams about um, good things. So when you say, I, though I understand this terminology, would you explain what it meant to see your shadow? To see my shadow, to really um, look at the loneliness and the sadness of um, thinking that there was something seriously wrong with me. Um, so, I, so I got to really delve into that um, uh, my sister um, had some mental illness, and there was alcoholism in the house. And so my sister got taken to the mental institution, and I thought, um, and I had the big fear that at 9, 10, 11 years old, that that's where I was going. That that was your, that was, the was where I was the destiny headed. that you would, you'd live the same, have yes. the same experience. Yes. Okay. And, and, and then the sadness around that with my sister that I couldn't help my sister um, that I was powerless over what the police were, um, that the police sometimes would come and take her away and, 
and so there was a lot of sadness and a lot of angry drama in the house so there's the, how old was she about this time that she was 13 when when the police were coming yeah to take that's yeah. got to be difficult yeah. yeah so so being able to at least the way i see my shadow of um the angst of of a little kid um being powerless and trying to understand how to get by um, without r- real good role models in the house um, and so delving into the shadow of the loneliness I, I think that's the the big thing and there's okay. going into my bedroom I had a sanctuary in my room but sometimes that sanctuary would be it would be like it'd be bigger than a football field of darkness um, that's the best way I could explain that loneliness. That's large. Yeah. Especially for, you're nine, ten years you're nine old. Years, so especially for a child. You haven't yeah. even reached adolescent yet. No. So the hormones are just on the edge of starting to kick in. They, yeah. they haven't really felt the impact of any of that at this point. Yeah. So that that explains that, that darkness pretty very well. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So, you know, with my story of, of getting put in special education and, quote, being a stoner, um, being super sensitive to, um, you know, what I thought other people were thinking and feeling. And, um, and so I basically emotionally shut down and um, really didn't know where it was safe um except for when i was drinking so as a young adolescent alcoholic um i knew how to get drunk and that would just take me on a ride and and i believe there's a reason why they call them spirits because it would take me for a ride (laughs) and and then i didn't have to be guarded i could just let loose but the problem with letting loose was that a lot of my shadow would come out in letting loose and then I would confront a policeman policemen don't like to be confronted for some funny reason um, <laughs> and then and then they would exert their there's power. a lot of proof to yes. say that you're correct about that yes um, so evidence um, there's a lot of evidence yes um, so so to speed up the story though um, I got heavily into uh, selling drugs um, and was selling LSD at 14 years old, 13 years old, um, for some older people and, um, sold lots of different drugs and, um, got arrested, uh, quite a bit. And, um, but I, I always, um, so, so I moved up to the Santa Cruz mountains and, and learning about living in the woods, learning about walking in the dark, Mm. and learning about trusting my intuition um, as a young stoner walking through the woods at three in the morning um, had you not you, you had not experienced this concept this idea of trusting yourself at this point correct because especially the shadow had was consumed i mean the, the analogy you used was the football field full of what well, part part of it in, in uh, I'll talk a little later about my Toltec training, but part of my, um, it's a word we use in Toltec, is my domestication. 
was learning coping strategies and strategies for my survival. Um, how do I survive? So um, honing my intuition as a drug dealer when I'm going into the neighborhood, um, I could pretty much, um, with my intuitiveness, um, map out who was safe, who wasn't, what house was good, um, what house wasn't good, who was carrying a gun, um, where, where I needed to be um, to keep myself safe. Mm. And okay. so some of those strategies I used um, once I moved up into the mountains um, with walking in the dark, being able to basically see in the dark um, and honing those skills. And all along, um, along with that was um, working with uh, my shadow side of, because um, a lot of times I would be wandering around two, three in the morning, maybe walking from one town to the other um, in the middle of the night in the woods, sad, crying, lonely, and um, being on guard for any dog that might want to try to bite me. Um, so learning how to interact in the woods and interact in that way, um, and I think it was a skill that has helped me in my life um, up until now at 61 years old. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. That's, that, I think that understanding, uh, having a sense of our intuition is so, so important. Um, and I mean, honestly, that's not something that's really taught in school. <laughs> uh, no. How to listen to our intuition or, and how to discern and differentiate between the different experiences that would let, uh, you know, identify what kind of um, understanding we're developing of a situation that you're in. I like the idea when you talk about walking into a neighborhood and having a feel or a thought or experience that allowed you to understand what was safe and wasn't what wasn't yeah that the and i guess i would use a word like there's some vibratory sense yes that you know of coming that i'm experiencing what's coming over me what where it's okay and where it's not necessarily okay so so part of the uh, um, I, I would call it it's a psychic ability and um, a vibrational thought process. Um, but I, part of my belief nowadays is that I believe all of us as animals, because I believe we're all animals, um, we have those senses, but a lot of them have been dumbed down um, in us, um, that now we're safe and comfortable or we have a sense of safety and comfort in our homes and in our automobiles um, but you know a couple thousand years ago things were a little bit different um, you know, what creates safety the idea of safety today yeah and what what did you know hundreds of years ago is, is quite different or thousands, yeah. especially thousands of years ago yeah, yeah. so and even as a, a little kid um, like I just I just knew things and I didn't know how I knew them and it was very confusing to me because um, that wasn't the, the status quo um, for being in school. Like, I, I didn't understand how they taught um, certain math um, equations, but I could figure them out. It would just take me 20 times longer to figure it out. Mm -hmm. um, and thus, there was something wrong with me. But as far as I knew, uh, there wasn't anything wrong with me, but I was being told that. 
Right. And so after a while, I started to believe that there was something wrong with me. And that was part of my shadow of there's something wrong with me and I need to fix it. Because I perceive things differently and I understand things differently. And so that, because I'm not doing it as... And I know this is this is inaccurate to say, but what is expected of the what the majority do, right? Yeah, I don't I don't perceive or learn the same way. This idea of how different people learn, and, the, and we even though we're more sensitive about that today, at least understanding that that you know, there some people learn by observing, some people learn by um, being taught directly, you know, informationally, and um, some people learn visually, so on and so forth. They're different different ways. Um, some people have to feel it themselves. You know, they have to under, they have to be actually able to touch it. It's kinetic. So, yeah. so I so I I I learned from a, a therapist. Uh, his name is Tim and Saramac, and um, and Tim and when I was telling him my story one day, he just looked at me. I was telling him my story about fixing the machines at Kodak, and he looked at me. and says, "Well, Russ, you're an intuitive learner." And I had never heard that term before, and it really changed my life. Mm. He said, and and it's interesting. They say, well, you really shouldn't get your validation from outside, but sometimes it really helps to have some outside information come in. Um, and when I got that information, I was amazed because then it everything fell into place and it made sense. How do I know how to fix these machines? Yeah. How do I know how to do things that I know how to do? And so there's nothing wrong with me. And, you know, I was, I was only like 35 years old, so it, it, it took a while to uh, understand that. And I'm still working on understanding it um, now. Um, so I, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about, um, we talked about uh, Carlos Castaneda um, before the interview. And um, when I was 13, 12 or 13, I um, started reading Carlos's books and they were just fantastical and the fantastical um, part of it um, really intrigued me um, because that's really where I went um, when I looked out the window was this fantastical life and um, and so that started started me looking at um, things in a fantastical way um, and in a different way than what they were teaching me in school, even though I didn't learn too much in school. Um, <laughs> because it, it really my, my, my real learning pretty much stopped around grade five. Mm. Um, and then after that, I was uh, full-blown into doing dope and um, doing that thing and cutting school and stealing cars and stuff. But um, learning about Carlos's work and then when I got sober... Um, and I started to like get my head cleared from the drugs that I had been using for years and years and years. Um, I, I'm going to go back for a minute because when, when I was heavily into cocaine and uh, doing meth, um, like, and this is kind of a funny story, kind of tragic at the same time, but I had, I had a long-term, very intimate relationship with Neil Young that Neil knew nothing about. <laughs> and um, because a lot of those nights when I was up doing crank and coke, I'd be wandering around the Santa Cruz Mountains, and he had a house there. Mm -hmm. And I would have these telepathic, what I thought were telepathic 
relationships, um, conversations with him, and and so so I was having these ideas and feelings, but and it feels funny to even say this on the podcast because some people will be going, "Oh my God, <laughs> what the heck?" What? <laughs> There's another certified, yeah, another cer- certifiable, and uh, you know, stalker, and, and I was. Um, <laughs> And eventually, um, and I was to meet Neil. Uh, one day, he was uh, jamming on the beach. Him and some other guys had rented a house on the beach, and me and my buddies were getting drunk. And I was telling my buddies that I knew Neil. And uh, they said, well, if you know him, go up in the house and say hi. So I went up to the house after some prodding, and I walked in the house. And, and the guys in the house said, who the heck are you? You need to get out of here. We're going to call the police. And uh, so I left rapidly and uh, kind of <laughs> killed that fantasy. Um, well, you made it in the house. <laughs> I mean, yeah. And, but it, Neil was hanging around Santa Cruz for a while that summer. Um, and, and it's interesting how things work out in life that um, once I got sober, I volunteered in a handicapped horseback riding program in Los Altos, California. Mm. And I ended up working with Neil's uh, son. Um, his name uh, was Benny Young, and so so it's interesting, at least in my mind, how energy works. That I I had this huge focus on Neil for a long, long time, and and then I end up working with his son, um, yeah. riding horses. Yeah. Um, it, so intuitively, again, if we're if talking just in, from intuition you understood there was some kind of connection there you just didn't in the moment understand what what the true maybe the true dynamics of it were right but there was something there right yeah and um that and that that brings up another thing of uh, my parents with their best intentions um they were trying to motivate me to get good grades and and this is part of my in toltec teaching it's like was i motivated by a carrot or a stick in my home ah and I was motivated by a carrot that was unattainable for me. If you get A's in school, you can be a Boy Scout. I was not a Boy Scout. And if you get A's and B's, you can play an instrument. I was not playing an instrument because I couldn't get A's and B's. And that led more into my shadow of, I'm being presented with this concept that is unattainable for me. Hmm. So I was very sad about that. Um, And and it just, I went deeper into my shadow of I'm worthless, I'm no good. I can't can't do this the way they're trying to show me how to do it. And and I want to bring that back around right now so I don't forget is um, you heard my uh, flute playing in the beginning of the uh, session here. And um, as a 50-year-old man, I had the intuition to um, buy a drum set. And I went to uh, the guitar center, and and I got overwhelmed by all the vibration in there, and I left. And I I live in a condominium, so I'm not going to buy a drum set anyways. Um, But I go to the Native American store, and they have a flute that costs $40. And that flute spoke to me and said, you need to buy me and you need to get the DVD and you need to watch the instructions. Mm-hmm. And I can be a little obsessive sometimes, maybe most of the time. And um, 
and I watched the directions and I started to play the flute and that was um, 11 years ago wow and now I have five CDs um, I'm in a movie in Iceland um, with my music um, right now I'm working with a record producer um, and so all the ideas um, and I'm I'm not going to blame my parents or society. It's just the way that I reacted to my domestication. Yeah. Was that I just, I crashed and burned into my shadow. Yeah. And then I crashed and burned into my addiction. And and for me, I see my addiction as, um, I've been on the spiritual path from the time before I was born. And my addiction was part of that spiritual path for me to really see my shadow and then to come through it and then to come to this place at 61 years old um, to recognize that this has been a journey and the journey is has been good some of it's been super painful and even at 61 some days i still i go into that shadow place of loneliness and sadness Mm. and and being able to accept that that that's that's part of me it's part of my spirit and it's not bad sure the idea the idea of shadow not being a negative not being something that is lacking um so the idea of owning at least for me russ this idea of owning and accepting the shadow part of myself becomes vital to finding you know integration of of self right integration to the whole or being wholehearted maybe that's a term i use quite a bit learning to live wholeheartedly meaning accepting and loving my shadow as much as i love the light you know i I mean i don't know if that makes oh it makes total sense to me because we're looking at my shadow um and i i think that maybe some people don't get the opportunity to really bring the shat bring some light on their shadow and to bring it to their consciousness mm-hmm. and i think some people are just operating from their shadow but they don't know they're operating from it it's like when i was in competition with the police and i didn't know i was operating like deep in my shadow and confronting the police and and i would lose and i would lose and i would lose and and so I wasn't really conscious of that process until later on um, when I got into therapy and started looking. Um, I, I wanted to touch on therapy. Um, so number one, when I was 14, my parents um, had me do transcendental meditation huh. because they thought it would get me off of drugs. Uh, the problem was is that... Um, when I got taken to get my mantra, I had dropped a hit of acid. And and so it was a, quite the experience <laughs> to sit in the room getting my mantra while I was just coming on to hit of LSD. Um, so oh, I, I got lost in my story. Well, I guess some people may think that's perfect time. <laughs> it's all from what perspective, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, no, I, I got lost in that story. There was a there was a reason why I was going down that road. Um, well, that you you were mentioning that your parents t- 
taught you, you know, they thought you should learn this, right? That yeah. They saw some value that, that oh, this, yeah. you give you a different insight into life or, I don't know, if it's mindful, mindfulness or something. And, and, and it did. Um, oh, I, I was hitting on therapy. Oh, um, yeah. so, so the idea of uh, getting some help. So transcendental meditation, um, I, I still remember my mantra. And through all that, because I used um, that meditation for a long, long time hmm. during my addiction. Um, sometimes trying to come down, sometimes trying to just hold on to myself emotionally and mentally. And but I'd never really gone to therapy. And um, and when I got sober, I just went to AA. I didn't go to therapy. I didn't go to treatment um, because I was afraid that I would leave treatment because I didn't. I'm kind of rebellious. I don't like anybody telling me what to do, and so I just I went to meetings and I knew the gig was up. And um, but three years into sobriety, um, I went to a a treatment program for codependency, and I I didn't even know what codependency meant. But I was um, in a relationship with a woman, and she got pregnant. And I said to her, as a good codependent would, what do you want me to do? I will do anything for you. And she said, I want you to go to treatment, this codependent treatment thing. And I said, sure. And I didn't even know what it was. (laughs) This is... That's the best intro to a story ever, because <laughs> yeah. you you lay it out with this idea of a codependent relationship, and your partner asks you, "I want you to go to codependence treatment," you know, which uh, obvious. Well, for me, I shouldn't say the word obviously. That's arrogant, but the the <laughs> the um, the notion of all addiction is has to do with dependency, and it's usually relational a relational dynamic. Yeah. So yeah. So. Um, the next week, I was in Oakland, California, in a room with maybe, I think there were seven participants and three therapists. Whoa. And there's a, a woman on the ground, and she's uh, like screaming at the top of her lungs, crying. And she's got a pillow in her hands, and she's twisting the pillow, and she's crying. And I'm standing back in the corner, and I'm just sweating like I've never sweat before and because in my house if you had feelings like that you're going off to the mental ward and the therapist came up behind me a male therapist and he put his hand on top of my head and he said Russ where are you and I said I sure am not here because Mm -hmm. this is not okay with me Mm -hmm. and he said well I want you to come back in the room and with his hand on my head I was able to come back in the room and um, participate with the participants in the room and to witness this person having true feelings. Mm. And that day changed my life. Mm. And what happened was is that a couple days later, I was the person on the ground uh, with my whole being open mm. and having my feelings. A totally new experience for me. And part of letting my shadow come into the light and have other people witness it. It be seen. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And, and 
I, I didn't think, my, I didn't even know that was really possible for me. And what happened um, after that, um, and so I'm kind of segueing into the Carlos Castaneda um, idea, this fantastical life of um, intuition, empathetic, empathetic um, feelings for other people, knowing things, being, quote, psychic, um, and being another bozo on the psychic bus, because I believe we all have those um, ideas and feelings, is that I started to, when I was opened up in that treatment, I started to have out-of-body experiences. I think I had them when they were drug-induced, and then now I'm three years sober, and I start to have them. And then one day, I'm sitting in my little house. that I live behind a big house in Menlo Park. And I have the door open. And this little boy, he runs up to the front of my door. And he looks at me. And it's me. And maybe he's maybe four years old. And he's got a buzz cut, haircut looks just like me and he waves at me and he has a sparkle in his eye and he and then he runs away hmm. yeah and that's it i said more than huh nope. <laughs> <laughs> i was like holy shit flashback and and then i go into my domestication oh it must be the lsd all the lsd i took or it must have been my psychosis from all the cocaine i did and trying trying to come up with some reasoning behind it <laughs> trying trying to mentally figure it out like a lot of us do and and so and for a my sobriety birthday i bought myself a bicycle and i became a bicycle rider and i would go up behind stanford university and i would sit and meditate and one day i'm sitting up there meditating and i look at the top of the rolling hills above stanford and I'm standing on top of the hill. and But I'm looking from the top of the hill, and I see myself sitting underneath the oak tree meditating. Mm. And the same thing, it was like, well, wow, that's interesting. Huh. And, of course, the next day I was rode my bicycle back up to that oak tree, and I'm trying to make it happen again because I want to have that feeling. I want to have that experience again. Right. And... And after um, that particular treatment, the um, therapist gave us an hour-long meditation to do, and I did it every day. And it was about clearing your chakras. I had no idea what a chakra was, and I really didn't care because I just listened to what the person said And because I'm a good codependent. Just do this, Russ. Okay, I'll do it. Um, it's good for you. Okay, I'll do it. And before it was drugs, here, take this. Okay, I'll do it. Um, and and so having those practices of um, not putting drugs in my body, getting exercise, eating better, even though I was eating a ton of sugar at the time to uh, deal with my extreme emotions of being newly sober, But starting to recognize these um, fantastical things that I think have been um, my birthright from the get-go. 
of being sensitive, being empathic. Um, recently, I just watched a, a show with, uh, I can't remember the, she's a singer, and it's about highly sensitive people. Uh, I think it's on Netflix. And um, what's her name? It's not Jewel. Um, super famous lady singer. Anyways, um, but it, in that show, they talk about that that some of us are just wired that way of being super, super sensitive. So we know things. Um, <clears throat> and sometimes it's obnoxious to know things. And now I'm learning how to um, kind of dumb my, my sensitivity down so I can go out into the world. Uh, but as an empath... Um, like putting a governor on, you know, like exactly. you have it on the, yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. like, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. As an empath and, and as an artist, um, as a Toltec, we're called, you know, we're an artist with our spirit and being able to be artistic with my spirit. Um, so I, I just bought a house up in the woods. I like sitting up in my house, sitting in the woods. I like walking in the woods, usually maybe with one other person. Um, when I'm working, when I take people on trips to Machu Picchu or to Mexico, um, being a group worker, I love being a group worker. Mm. I love working in groups, using my intuition. Um, it has been very beneficial. But typically, if I take a journey to Mexico and it lasts five to ten days, i got to come home and rest for at least a week mm -hmm. um, because it's just it's a lot. Um, but I found um, a way to utilize um, what I see as um, the abilities that I have uh, to help people and to help myself and to recognize that um, we're all basically the same. We're just maybe have maybe a little more a little more thought process going on. Some of us have a little less thought process going on, maybe a little more feeling going on or uh, like I and my story before was is I'm not very detail oriented, but I I am. I just need to really focus on the details, yeah. or I get distracted away yeah. by some feeling that I'm having in the moment. Um, <clears throat> so that uh, the idea of treating that treating the sensitivity with a stimulant is uh, actually counterintuitive. You know the idea of growing up and someone saying you know you have a you have the ability or low your short attention span or the inability to focus because of how sensitive one is to yeah. their environment yeah. that reframes that away from you know everyone's brain and everyone's ability to perceive the environment around them is different and of course I, I, I'm sh I'm sure this has has to do with how well um, at least under the Toltec framework one has been domesticated into that system you know the more comfortable we are with the system maybe the less you know we we need the uh the, a substance to feel more in alignment with the system itself. Correct. yeah correct so this this notion of living without that but accepting and listening to myself and being able to understand actually um, what i need and how to process my own feelings and senses and senses and perceptions and not seeing it as something different especially something wrong you know correct yeah, that, that it's a problem right correct it's and that's the beauty of uh of becoming an adult <laughs> <laughs> 
is it took me a while yeah and and i'm still working on that yes uh, becoming an adult right still uh, working on that and uh, i i had a uh, al-anon sponsor that um he was 76 and he had been doing al-anon since the 70s and he told me that he had he was just starting to learn to grow up and and the idea of having wisdom um is an interesting idea because I, I really wasn't in touch with that word um, being able to have wisdom about these things and that it's okay just to be it's okay not to know it's okay to be insecure it's okay to be frustrated um, and sometimes it becomes unokay for other people when you're having those experiences because then their sensitivity kicks up. Yeah. And I know that happens for me sometimes if someone's disappointed with me. Then my, my sensitivity and my domestication comes in and says, oh, no, I'm bad. I did something wrong. And that's my story from that's my shadow from a mm-hmm. long, long time ago. That's, it's still with me. It's, I don't think it's going to go anywhere. But being able to be aware of it is key for me yeah and, and what evidence do i have that that says that any of that's true right, right. you know i mean that's from the, the practical side I, I one of the things that I, I still work on from from this very aspect of shadow is wanting to say on the basis of, of really my reality of what my perception is what evidence do i have that any of that's wrong right you know that something's broken here or something's not right and usually the evidence is very low. It's, usually, it's always attached to and threaded together by some irrational story that quite often is one that I may have taken on based upon someone else's belief system, right? Their right. story. So, right. Yeah. And actually, I'd, I'll hit on that for just a minute. Um, in the Toltec tradition and the way I teach um, in Mexico and actually here, is the idea of domestication is that maybe when I was uh, a couple months old and maybe I pooped my pants and my mother was frustrated about something else and she was angry about something else and then I pooped my pants and that just pushed her over the edge. Maybe she grabbed me and and said, you're always, you're always pooping your pants at the wrong time, and I can't believe you poop your pants right now, and uh, I, you're just, you're such a pain. I, I can't believe it. I, I got other things I got to do. And, and as a little kid, I'm just doing something that's normal. And, and, but I hear that, and really what I hear is the vibration. I, and I feel this vibration of frustration, and I just took a shit, you know, and I, I don't know about you, but sometimes like, and I don't feel comfortable. It's a very vulnerable place uh-huh. is using the restroom. And so the idea of that, so I'm a bother to my mother. Mm. And there's this vibration. And maybe I don't even understand what the words mean, but I, I feel this vibration. And there's a judgment in the vibration. Yes, yes. And, and the vibration's not a smooth vibration. It's this jagged vibration. And then I build another agreement inside myself around that vibration. When I hear that vibration, I'm bad. I'm in trouble. I've done something wrong. Maybe I'm getting jerked around by my mother because she's frustrated. 
Um, and then by the time I'm six years old, I've built a million agreements on top of that one. Hmm. And then by the time I'm 20, I have 10 million. And so going back to what you said about these belief systems that sometimes I know for myself that I don't even understand where that feeling's coming from. I've been in therapy for a long, long time and going in to do the work of shadow and trying to dig around and looking. And sometimes it just, it doesn't, it's irrational, unrational. It's not, doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. Why would I feel that way about that? But in looking at it in, in at least the way I see Toltec shamanism is it makes a lot of sense that it's built on top of so many different agreements and starting to look at and some people talk about peeling the onion Mm -hmm. and it's like this onion is never ending come on man i've (laughs) I've cried you know ten thousand onions worth of tears over this issue and um, in the Toltec world, there, there's a mythical animal called Quetzalcoatl. And Quetzalcoatl uh, is a mixture between a serpent and a Quetzalbird. Quetzalbird's very beautiful, and serpent's um, a serpent. Um, in, in Teotihuacan, they show them as, as rattlesnakes. Mm-hmm. And... One of my teachers down there, he told me one day, I'm standing in a cactus field in my shorts, barefoot, and he shows me the symbol of a serpent like going in the sand. And it's a sine wave. And he he says, this is the Grand Mysterio. And I'm looking at him like, well, what do you mean? He says, this is the Grand Mystery. It's Quetzalcoatl is the Lord of the above world, is that this vibration, everything in the universe is vibrating. Hmm. Everything, as far as we know. Science says that everything is vibrating, just at different levels. Hmm. And coming back into this idea of domestication, that when we use a judgment, Mm -hmm. there's a vibration that is not a smooth vibration when we just state a fact there's a smoother vibration a fact is this is a brain but when we say this is a bad brain there's a vibration that goes along with it Mm -hmm. that's vibrating at a different level so if you take those all the way back into if we look at our brains and see what's going on with our brain is that their electrical impulses, their vibrations, and we're feeling those vibrations. And so it, it makes sense to me um, when I do uh, Toltec work with people is to, to get them to look at an, one agreement that isn't serving them in their life and then to ask them what's underneath that agreement. And to start digging. Because when I started my apprenticeship as a Toltec, I would get annoyed, judgmental, frustrated with my Toltec teacher because he would ask me to do the same thing over and over and over. And now as a more seasoned Toltec teacher, I understand it. When I go to people, when I'm working with them, and I ask them to look under and they get angry with me. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Um, so I thought that was important to bring up in our talk. I really appreciate that that you did, and um, I, I I use some of this same language, and I, I wanted to share this with you real quick. Mm-hmm. Then we'll we'll take it. We'll pause, and if that's okay, and maybe uh, yeah, little little. little music a, a, a yeah. little a little uh, flute love yeah um and then uh and, and we'll come back um but this this notion and and i notice it's i use the word agreement as well um as a component to address what has been holding this story or narrative together that it, <clears throat> it has such an effect on someone or in psychological terms would say it creates so much cognitive dissonance right that and it's it's a story or an agreement that's part of a, a or a narrative that's part of an individual or a person's story that is first of all it's not true because it, if it was it, it, the cognitive dissonance wouldn't exist it would line up with the heart and the wholeheartedness of that person the, the another way of putting that is with um, it would line up with their values, morals, and ethics, or, or whatever that that was true. It's yeah. the cognitive dissonance happens when we're not living our truth, whatever whatever that is. And learning to to support someone in first of all feeling safe that they can go and discover the nature of the story of that agreement is such a powerful experience. I mean that to me is why. Um, I, and that is why I, I've, I do or choose to live the life I do and to serve others in the way I do. Um, I'm careful about the language, obviously, and, and sometimes, uh, but understand this is all on some level um, related to the ability to um, create or hold space for healing, which is really what shamanism is to me is all about. It's the idea of being able to hold that in such a way as it creates safety, but also truth for that person to confront the, their own truth and what's real and what's not. So thank you for sure. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, that's very, very valuable. Okay, we're, we're going to just pause for a minute and then uh, we'll be here back with a little bit of music.
Oh, How was oh, that? That was incredible. Here, I'm going to play a. This is more of a traditional Comanche song. At least the way I hear it. Thank you. Um, when did you know? When did you know this? This feel, this feeling that came from the flute. Was it the the first time you you picked it up and played it that day when you bought it? Or did, what what was the sense when you felt like you had touched upon this? avenue or, or venue or medium that you're able to express the deepest part of yourself through? I don't know. <laughs> How about that for an answer? <laughs> Good enough. <laughs> and, uh, like, I, I think I knew um, there's this other thing that came about in Peru. It's, um, And I believe we all have it. And it I think it's connected with intuition. It's called, um, or at least I call it, um, your knowing. Um, that I, I think all of us um, bozos on the bus have a knowing. Um, we, we just know. Yeah. And there's certain times and certain places that we know and we're connected with something. For me, it's been um, where I live sometimes, I was driving on the highway in Sausalito one day and I just knew I was gonna live there. And within about three months, I was living there. And um, left all logical devices, I wouldn't live there. Um, but <laughs> and I went down there and, area. <laughs> and, I, and I found an apartment that was only 750 a month and that was like 30 years ago. Um, but with the flute, um, and it happens for me with rocks, plants, people, um, that I have a knowing, and they speak to me. So this little flute that I bought, it spoke to me, and it said, by me. Um, when I got sober, a voice came to me and said, you cannot live this way anymore. And I call that my knowing. Um, some people call it other things, but that's what I call it. Um, and so the flute said, hey, buy me. And hey, watch the video. And I'm not big on following directions, mm -hmm. um, but I actually followed the directions. 
And then I took a risk. So I'd been motivated by the spirit and the flute. I took a risk and I went to a flute circle. And they were all trying to play like uh, a very famous Grammy award-winning flautist. Um, and they wanted me to play a song like her. And I said, well, number one, I can't play like her. And number two, I don't want to play like her. And so within three weeks, I had three flutes. And I told the lady at the Native American trading post down on Redwood Road, um, don't sell me any more flutes. And she says, mister, you give me your credit card, I'll sell you anything. And <laughs> <laughs> so, well, at least she was honest. She was very honest. And, and then what happened was I looked up, um, I bought a custom-made flute by Bill Hughes. And the flute, it just squeaked and squeaked and squeaked. And for about six months, I tried to make that flute flute play and it just squeaked and squeaked and squeaked and i thought to myself because i'm i can be mr fancy pants sometimes and I'm, I'm gonna find mr hughes and take this flute back to him and tell him that the flute squeaks and so i looked up mr hughes and at the time he was at the uh, the pioneer house over on 33rd south and um I went in and introduced myself, and I showed him the flute, and I said, this flute, it just squeaks and squeaks and squeaks. And, and, if, and if you know who Bill is, he looks at me, and in a very soft voice, he says, blow softer. <laughs> and um, thus started my relationship with uh, Bill Hughes. Mm-hmm. And now I have, I don't know, 15 of his flutes and um, a great relationship with him. And 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 building my relationship with the flute and i think it's like with anything um it takes time it takes trial and error and um and then interacting i in the last year i've become really obsessed with um buying native made flutes and um learning from these artists that and and some past artists that have now passed on um, that their their belief is, and I believe it also, that there's a, a spirit in each flute. Mm. And there's a song in each flute. And it's really up to me to find the song in the flute. Mm. And just like you heard um, that one flute squeaked, it's had it with me today. <laughs> it's like it, you played with your nose. You you played a song. It sounded really good, but no, I'm not playing anymore. Uh, so, um, so so the idea of knowing, um, having your knowing and going with it, even though sometimes it may not make sense, and other times it may make total sense, but you may be maybe a little intimidated by mm. um, that because you just know. Mm. I, I I like that ex- explanation, and I I definitely relate to this I- idea of having some understanding. It's it's almost like a sense of wisdom because then I know. I mean, when I I know how, I know how to apply this, and maybe that's the listening part. When I, I see you, in my in my vocabulary, it'd be um, I know because I listened and I heard it. Not not the flute itself, but the, this. I love this idea of each flute has a song, you know. Yeah. And learning to listen to be able to play that song, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and having the patience. <laughs> patience. Um, and, and it's it's like any relationship that you build is having the patience to listen 
and then to interact and then to listen and interact. Yeah. And sometimes uh, there's a lot of squeaking going on um, in the interaction of when you're listening and when you're playing. Sometimes I'm going to be squawking. Sometimes the flute's going to be squawking. And sometimes you have to set it down for a little while. Give it a rest. Give it a break. Mm. When I sit down to play the flute in the morning for my morning Facebook video, um, I may go through five flutes before I connect. Because my knowing tells me, um, because a lot of times I'll ignore my knowing. My knowing will tell me to pick up uh, the blue flute. Mm -hmm. But my intellect will tell me, you need to pick up the red flute. And, and I think that happens a lot in my daily life, is my knowing will tell me, and I'll ignore my knowing, because my intellect, my logical brain will tell me, no, that's not right. I'm going to do something else. And then eventually I'll be back with the blue flute, um, because the red flute just ain't working. Yeah. Um, but sometimes it takes maybe six flutes uh, to come to that place. Today I, I thought about one flute, and I grabbed six flutes, and put them on the couch and then i ended up playing a bill hughes flute um that i truly have a great relationship with mm -hmm. um, um i before i end i want to talk about this idea of uh, the squeaking flute by the way i like the term i have a relationship with because I, I that is so true whatever it is right yeah I have a relationship with yeah you know and i there's a and i'll, I'll when you're done when you have to tell your story i'm going to tell you about a story i have a relationship with um three cedar trees in uh, in uh, south of Escalante in in, in the uh, BLM, you know, out in the, the monument. So just remind me of that. So know. so you have a knowing um, and a relationship with that knowing with those trees. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. And yeah. And so I'm going to interview you now. Okay. So so how does it feel to to be there with them? Emotional. Very. I mean, I'm gonna. I'm gonna get. I'm gonna feel awesome. emotion come up. Awesome. Just as we. Just as I talk about this. Yeah. Um, I feel as alive as connected to those three uh, cedar trees, juniper trees. Sorry. Um, as I do anything in life, mm -hmm. and as it, it, and when it comes to a relationship with them, um, the I, it is a knowing, you know. And when I come go to that spot, I. I, I go and sit with them and I embrace them and I, I say this and I know how this sounds <laughs> now, in, in that other mind right not the intuitive knowing mind yeah um, and and this deep respect and love for these three trees and what they provided for me in my 20 years of experiencing this area of uh, this primitive area of the desert um, I have felt that they were my, you know, they were my companions throughout this trip, and I treat them and respect them as such. That's awesome. Yeah, and they're with you right now. They are. They are here yeah. right now. Yeah. yeah, I can feel them. Yeah. So, so your your uh, vibration with them is matched. Is matched. And at least that's my my story that I tell about that is, and, and what a beautiful thing to see the look in your eyes when you're talking about them. Yeah. It's like, oh, how beautiful! Yeah, they're 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 called the I call them the three sisters. That's awesome. Yeah, and someone else gave them all names, but I can't remember what they are. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, yeah, and and Carlos, um, actually Don Juan, um, I think he instructed Carlos to go sit 
He says, when you're disturbed, go sit with a plant and listen to it. And it will bring you a, a degree of humbleness. Mm. That you're one with that plant. You're no better. You're no different. You are one with that plant. Mm. And it's such a beautiful thing because, if, at least for me, I try to go hiking in the woods every day. Mm. And to be able to be out in the woods and just to be in the pureness of the forest is beautiful. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's good stuff. Thanks for telling me that. Yes. No, I mean, I've... I've uh, I've cried with these with these trees. I mean, it, you they, just did. Yeah, they, yeah. <laughs> but, and, and I and I feel really that that sense of love is is powerful, and that's why I, I, I love is is universal. It is a universal connector and yeah. elixir. So, thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, thank you. You got to interview too. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> that's the group worker in me. That's the group worker. <laughs> By the way, I love group process and whatever it looks like in any form. To me, it, it, it is, it sort of is the glue um, that holds community together. Is creating that safety and that vulnerability in a group environment. I just love that that yeah. aspect of it. Um, it's, it's part of the reason why I still do <laughs> for all these years. Um, when I stepped away from su- working in the substance abuse field directly, I still do an aftercare and have um, because that. That what happens in aftercare to me is is it's like a crucible that has every extension of human experience and people keep coming back for the community and they know they can show up and be vulnerable and they won't be judged in that environment as long as you know I mean as long as the group's healthy but that's up to the groups yeah yeah so it's out of out of my hands but it's a beautiful thing to see I did it I did the last one I, I laugh about it because. I, I did it from the car when we were driving back from Montana, and I was <laughs> I was on my phone doing the Zoom meeting with you know fourteen other people, <laughs> just because to me that the sacredness of that group you know deserves showing up for it. So yeah. I do my best to no matter where I am or what when it's happening. And that and to me that's kind of the beauty of being able to be on Zoom nowadays. Yes. And yeah. I've been much more available to groups that I wouldn't have been available to before yeah. because I had to be there in person. Yeah. And so now I can do it in uh, on Zoom. So um, I can't remember what I was talking about before, um, but I, I guess to kind of wrap all this up, um, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about... Um, going to Teotihuacan and one of my teachers told me this and I thought it was beautiful that Russ when you come and you bring groups here you are not doing the work the place does the work with the people you're here to hold space keep the space safe mm-hmm and and it and it's funny to say in in these days um it relieved me of all responsibility um of doing any work um Mm. my my job really is to hold a container there and i see that and i I do um, groups at treatment centers now Mm -hmm. um, using the mesa and some native american ideology and the four agreements um, 
and being able to present information and then allow the clients and allow the group to do their work. Mm -hmm. And it's a beautiful thing to watch. Um, and so I want to end with this is, and it's kind of funny to me. So I'm, I have a group in Mexico in Teotihuacan and one of my clients says to me, Russ, do you just make this shit up? <laughs> and I looked at her, I said, matter of fact, I do. <laughs> with 30 years of experience, I make it up from my intuition and my 30 years of experience doing this work. Mm. So yes, I, I make it up mm. as I go, just like all of us do. So I guess being a, another bozo on the bus, we're all just making it up and doing the best we can. Beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. All right. Um, one of the things that I, I ask the people that come on this this program is um, uh, if there were uh, any music or songs or that have meaning for you in some way that represent sort of a, a story of your life or have been impactful in some way, um, are there a couple songs that stand out to you that when you look back over your history, uh, it, any type of music, it doesn't doesn't matter what it is, but does anything stand out for you? In Agata de Vida. Iron, Iron Butterfly. Yeah, Iron Butterfly. Okay. <laughs> I was trying to think, who's the band? <laughs> Steppenwolf or Iron Butterfly? <laughs> uh, in the Garden of Eden, that's what it was supposed to be. Um, oh, that's right. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, another influential song. Um, well, why, why that song, if you don't mind? What is it about? When I was eight years old, my brother was rocking it in his bedroom. There was a certain vibe to it. It was very powerful, um, long, um, loud back then. Uh, in the early 60s, everybody had really big speakers, and it was just, uh, it was, and it was a powerful time, I think, in the country, mm -hmm. um, and in my household. Um, so, li listening to that, that song was powerful, and looking at, because I, I see myself, from the get-go, I was an artist. Mm. I, I just, it wasn't okay to be an artist. Um, and... So seeing the album cover, listening to the music, mm -hmm. I was very in tune with stones and the trees and the rocks, and and so just having that powerful song there. Um, and another song, Sweet Emotion, Aerosmith. Mm -hmm. Aerosmith. Same thing, if you play it really loud, um, <laughs> there's a certain vibe to it that is powerful. And almost anything Pink Floyd, just because it's ethereal. It's Pink Floyd. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and I, I like ethereal music, so. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's beautiful stuff. Yeah. That's beautiful stuff. All right. Um, thank you, Russ. I'm, I'm glad today happened exactly when it happened. Thank you. Which was the perfect time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I uh, appreciate you sharing your story and um, your wisdom with listeners and uh, hopefully oh how do they check you out how do they um, find your music you can find me on iTunes under Russ Jones okay. um, and Spotify Russ Jones um, so I'm on Amazon I'm on most platforms most I'm platforms. on I'm on Facebook um, under Russ Jones and then I have a, a fan page Russ Jones native flute music um, I'm just starting to record um, with a band 
uh, called Mort Morton Jones, M-O-R-T-O-N-J-O-N-E-S. And that music will be coming out. Um, I have one song. We have one song on Spotify right now uh, called Pumawanka. And it was named after a glacier mountain in the uh, high Andes of Peru, mm-hmm. up above the Sacred Valley. Um, so that's that's how you can find me. Okay. Yeah. Good enough. Yeah. You 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 are you are available and people will be able to reach out to you. Oh yeah. So like oh, I, yeah. I get that. All right. Thank you, Russ. I appreciate it. Um, we'll go out as we usually do <laughs> with a little Joan Osborne. Talk to you guys soon. Bye bye.